Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Among the pleasures of summer reading can be revisiting books. The novel Whiskey and Ribbons by Lisa Cross Smith came out in 2018 and was recognized as an outstanding fiction debut. We'll listen back to a conversation with the author later in the hour. Tiffany Park celebrates the Roaring Twenties with her documentary, The Jazz Age, an African-American perspective. It's been selected for the 2020 Bronze Lens Film Festival. We begin on stage at the Alliance Theater. We usually associate the word collision with a crash or accident, something negative. Not when the collision is created by playwright and novelist Pearl Clegg. The Alliance Theater's Mellon Playwright-in-Residence guides teenage students through the Palevsky Collision Project each summer, Pearl Clegg is with us now. Pearl, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Always a pleasure. This is the 19th year of the project. Would you please give us a brief description of what takes place during your collision? What we do is every summer we gather together 20 young people Um, high school students from around the metropolitan Atlanta area. And we start with the basic text. And then we experience that text together on the first day. But then we don't really tie ourselves to that text. We're only looking at the ideas that are there. And we kind of use that as a jumping off point so that the participants can develop their own script. We spend the first two weeks exposing them to all kinds of wonderful artists, workshops, different field trips that we do, and they write every day. And I pick up their writing every day after we are done with it. And at the end of the first two weeks, I spend a long weekend and I put everything that they've written together into a script. I don't write any of it, they write everything. But what I do is shape it into a script. And this is my 10th year doing this project. And every year, what I find is that the things they've written 
put them in conversation with each other so that when I do the script, I try to be very conscious of listening to their voices and making sure that that conversation comes across because then when we invite audiences to join us, it becomes a three-way conversation between the text that we've used, um, the participants that we have that have added their own experience and ideas and the audience itself. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a wonderful project. Susan Booth thought of it many, many years ago because she was looking for a way to engage specifically high school students. And I think it's one of the most um, significant programs that I've ever worked with. I intended to do it for one summer, and now this is my 10th year. <laughs> I, I wonder, has anyone, I'm thinking your husband, Saren, um, but has anyone ever filmed or videotaped you feverishly trying to assemble a script from all the kids' submissions. <laughs> no, that would now that would probably be that would be a horror film, Lois, because it's just so it's not really horrible. It's just very uh demanding because I'm trying to put myself into the brains and hearts of 20 17, 18-year-old students without judgment, without uh, trying to make them lean one way or the other. And our, our director, Patrick McCullery, who is, is celebrating his 10th year with Collision as well, we often laugh about the fact that when we go into the project every summer, we have an idea about what we think that project is going to be and where the kids are going to go with it. And they never do. They never go <laughs> with where we think they will. So that, um, that we always have to remember to listen to them, to be open to them, and that this is their opportunity to speak as their young, hopeful, idealistic selves who don't often get to hear the unfiltered views of, um, of this generation. And what it always does for me is to make me feel hopeful. It banishes all cynicism, which is the bane of all writers. Um, and it just really makes me um, feel like this generation is prepared to step into all of the craziness that we are handing them with this world that they're growing up in. But they are, are ready, they are bright, they are creative, and they, are, they ain't no ways tired. They're ready to work. You have chosen a wide range of topics over the years from the U.S. Constitution to the Grapes of Wrath, John Lewis's March. Please tell us about your choice for this year's collision. Uh, this year's collision is a, a book that's really a long poem. It's a collection of poems, but it, it reads as a novel almost when you read it. It's by Kip Wilson and it's called White Rose. And it's about um, a group of very young people in Germany in 1943 and they were resisting Hitler. They realized that they did not want to live in a country that was uh, what Germany was becoming under Hitler. And they decided to risk their lives uh, to resist. And they printed leaflets and they figured out ways to get out information. And they tried to organize just in a very small group to see what they could do to resist. And they were wonderfully creative with it. They were brave with it. Um, a brother and sister were really the ones who kind of got that going. Um, Sophie is the sister and Hans is, is her older brother. And they became the people who kind of were driving this underground organization called White Rose. Um, and the book is so wonderful because it takes us through their journey as awakening activists, as awakening citizens, but it does not sugarcoat what happens because these are real people 
in Hitler's Germany, and they were executed um, for their activism at the end of the book. So it's a very serious text, but it's beautifully written, and it really seems to resonate um, with our young people because they're living in the midst of great demonstrations, great resistance to things that don't make this country feel like the country they want to grow up in. Mm -hmm. So that we're trying to give them some historical perspective on what it means to be a young activist, on how wonderful it is to actually join with other people to fight for the right thing, and also to be serious about it. Because like these young people, that resistance often comes with a price. So we're um, working with them. They are, they are producing wonderful writing, wonderful videos, and they're just really a, a great, great group of kids. Would you tell us a bit about the group, their makeup? How are the kids chosen? We interview them. We On the Alliance website, we invite people to be in touch with us if they're interested in the project. And then we have to pick 20, and we often have 60 or 70 applicants. But we interview them. Patrick and I talk with each one. And it's not like an audition like theater often is. It's not like a test kind of, okay, now you got to tell me your, you know, everything about yourself. It's more like an, a more relaxed conversation because what we're looking for are not necessarily theater kids. We've had physics students, we've had political science students, but what we're looking for are participants who are open, who are curious, who are interested in hearing new ideas, who are able to discuss their own ideas, and who are able to enter a space, which is what we try to create with the project, a space that is non-judgmental so that they can hear views that are different than their own and express their own views in a way that is not argumentative, that doesn't um, come off in an aggressive way, but shares what they think um, and what they're committed to. And I think especially in these times in our country when any discussion of anything political seems to be so fraught that it's really important for young people to come together in a space where we can guide them into how to talk to each other across their differences without judgment. We can guide them in a way that lets them express themselves with all the youthful passion that we love, but doesn't, um, doesn't become aggressive, doesn't become, if you don't agree with me, you're a bad person and you should be punished, but becomes more of an idea about this is a, an amazing country, an amazing place to have all kinds of different ideas flying around all the time. And we want them to be able to participate fully in that kind of national dialogue. Hmm. And the space you are talking about, literally and figuratively, is actually a virtual space now. This is for the first time. We've never done the Collision Project virtually. And I am such a technophobe that it was terrifying to me that we were going to try to translate what we do into Zoom world, which was a brand new world for me before the pandemic. But these young people don't have those same feelings about the technology. They've grown up with it. They're used to it. They do TikTok. They do Slack. They do all these things whose names I don't even know. But they're so um, used to it and so willing to push it a little further. And they are able to communicate with each other easily with the technology. And they have really kind of been able to lead us into understanding that the technology doesn't have to be a distancing kind of experience that we did not want it to be, but can also be something that allows them to come together. So they have amazed me with their ability to create community 
within this Zoom world to create excellent creative work within this Zoom world and to have the same kind of feeling for each other, even though they can't touch each other, even though they can't hug each other. And you know, I'm a theater person, this is a theater program. So we're big on hugging each other. That's, that's the thing we really miss so much. At the end of every session, you know, we would make a circle and we would all talk and, you know, hug each other and go back and come back the next day. But we can't do that. So we have to kind of figure out how to work with Zoom in a way that brings us together, but understanding that this is a very different space. But I'm, I'm so glad that we decided to do it. And the camps at the Alliance have been um, virtual also this summer because there you know, was no way to bring people together. But we talked about that so much. Can we do it? Should we do it? And we decided there's never been a more important time to let young people come together and hear their voices and refine their ideas and work creatively. So we took a deep breath and said, okay, let's see if we can do it. And it's just been wonderful. Pearl, how does this experience, the Collision Project, bring home the meaning and the importance of theater for teenagers? I think that for some of them, it's actually the first time they've had an experience where they got to hear their own voices in a theater piece. Many of them have um, attended you know, theater. A lot of them are musical theater kids, so they are obsessed with Hamilton. Um, and they've looked at things that they really loved and enjoyed. But this experience with Collision gives them a chance to not only tell the story, but to tell the story in their own words, to be the story that they're telling. And I think for many of them um, who have not done this kind of devised personal work before, it makes them able to claim theater in a way that they haven't before. It makes them understand that this is a living, breathing art form that is dependent on all of us who love it to continue to come to it as vulnerable beings, to continue to come to it in a way that allows us to say, okay, I'm afraid of this because it's demanding total honesty from me, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna talk to my peers, I'm going to write what I really have in my heart. And I think for many of them, it's an extremely liberating experience because they've never realized that they are the story. They have the right to be the story, to stand there in the light and tell their story to the community that they live in. And I think it empowers them, not only as citizens, which we're always trying to do, but as artists to understand that whatever your art form is, it can find a home in theater. And you can use these um, techniques that you have, the new things that they're teaching us about using the technology, but all of those can be put into the service of what theater actually is, which to me is that ancient thing about people sitting around the campfire and telling the stories of their tribe. And all the technology aside, all the money that people pour into big productions, at the heart of it, it's all of us sitting together in community to hear the stories of our lives. And I think this project actually lets them see that, some of them for the very first time, and we have several of them who've come back to work with us this summer, and they have been generous about sharing with us um, how much collision impacted their lives in that way. So it's, you know, in those few days when I'm trying to put the script together, <laughs> and just thinking, how can I ever do this? Why do I ever agree to do this? I'll never do it again. And of course, it all comes together, and I can't wait to do it. Alliance Theatre Playwright-in-Residence, Pearl Clay. 
There will be more information on the Palevsky Collision Project on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the Jazz Age, also known as the Roaring Twenties. In February, the DeKalb History Center featured a screening of Tiffany Park's documentary, The Jazz Age, an African-American perspective. The film has just been selected for the 2020 Bronze Lens Film Festival. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Tiffany Parks, and she began with a look back at this vibrant time. We wanted to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Jazz Age, but we wanted to celebrate it from a Southern African-American viewpoint because we hear about it normally from the big northern city, But the South had a jazz age, and uh, we wanted to celebrate it, and we wanted to, you know, educate people in terms of what it looked like. You know, Atlanta was a hub of education. Black businesses were booming during that time on Auburn Avenue. There were 72 African-American businesses on Auburn Avenue, and uh, it was, again, a hub of education. And you had literary societies in Atlanta, And so there was a lot going on, and you had organizations like the NAACP. They were beginning to sort of document what was going on in terms of racial violence in the South, and they were documenting all of this in their, you know, uh, national magazine called The Crisis. And all of that was going on, and it was really exciting. And, you know, black people were driving autos, and they were doing a lot of interesting Thing. So we want wanted people to learn about that. What did it look like in the South? And plus, the South, here we're in the Bible Belt. It was a kind of complicated history with African Americans and the black church and jazz. It was just kind of like a really complicated situation. But um, so we want people to learn about those intersections. Tiffany, you'll be showcasing your documentary. Can you talk a little bit about what it's going to be touching upon? Pretty much the documentary is going to focus on the jazz age in the South. And like I said before, it's going to touch on, you know, what what was the jazz age? What did it look like in the South? How was it different from, you know, the northern big city? And people were coming down south, and they were coming specifically to Atlanta because they heard that Atlanta was the city of opportunities. The new Negro was Atlanta. It was revealed through the businesses and education. Dr. Dwight Andrews and Dr. Pelham McDaniels, who are featured in your film, talk about this concept of the new Negro 
For those of who are unfamiliar with that term, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, in the documentary, you'll see that Dr. McDaniels, you know, he talks about how the new Negro isn't really a super new concept. It was just during the 20s. It, they had the space to become uh, more freedom during that time. Because before, you know, in the 1800s, African Americans were trying to, you know, have an identity past slavery, but you had so much violence back then. But in the 1920s, because you had this war, World War One, it gave um, African American soldiers an opportunity to sort of experience what it was like, freedom with European soldiers. They made friends with European soldiers. And so they had freedoms over in Europe that they did not have in America. So they came back to America and, you know, they were heroes. They were these heroes and they influenced the neighborhoods. So, you know, their communities. And so when they came back, they talked about, you know what, I was in Europe. I made friends with European soldiers and that can happen in America. That needs to happen in America. So that was their vision. And they gave everybody kind of a sense of the future, a better future. And so they decided that, you know what, life is short. They saw their friends getting blown up in World War One. Life is short. Let's make the most of, you know, what we have despite racism. And like I said, in Atlanta, they opened businesses. They were educated. And um, that was the concept of New Negro. And like you said, that birthplace is like Auburn Avenue. Yeah, the birthplace was Auburn Avenue. That's where it, it it was. You can walk up and down Auburn Avenue, and that was called the richest Negro street in America because you had 72 African-American businesses. You had everything, post offices, everything you needed to survive. You had the church if you wanted to get married. You had the funeral home, Hogabrook's Hager, funeral home. You know, if you had to bury somebody, everything in between dance halls, everything on Auburn Avenue and it was like the epitome of the new Negro you know from a southern perspective. Why do you think the South is so often overshadowed especially in the African American community culturally in the jazz age history why do you think it's overshadowed? I think it's because of the racism because it was you know place where there was so much you know slavery and racism and I think and poverty and I think people just a lot of times discount the South. And I think even Southerners have a real sort of negative view of the South because of the history. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's so much you can learn from that tragic history. You can learn Mm -hmm. so much. And I think that's why it's overlooked. Filmmaker Tiffany Parks, her documentary, The Jazz Age, an African-American perspective, has been selected for the 2020 Bronze Lens Film Festival in the category of short documentary. This is City Lights on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Singer-songwriter Rhonda Ross Kendrick is part of an American musical legacy that shaped the culture of our country. She is quite literally a child of Motown. Her mother is Diana Ross, and her father is Barry Gordy. When I spoke with her during last year's Atlanta Jazz Festival, Rhonda talked about discovering her own voice and rhythm. I do feel like there are audience members out there or or lovers of Motown out there 
who would have liked for me to uh, be sort of the second coming uh, <laughs> of, of that Motown thing. And what I say to that is there is only one Diana Ross and anyone trying to copy that is going to get their feelings hurt. <laughs> but, um, but I do think I am the next incarnation of what Motown was in that. It's not the same uh, genre of music, but what they were doing, what my father and my mother and the other uh, Motown uh, stars of that early day, what they were doing was creating a music that was new, that was authentic to who they were and what their experiences were at the time. Um, they were thinking outside the box. They were not making music that someone else had dictated for them to make. They were following their own rhythm and their own melodies inside of themselves, whether or not that was acceptable in society's standards for them to be doing. Well, clearly and that was yeah, acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, but it was acceptable because they stood on it, because they knew it, because they believed in it, because they celebrated it themselves. And so that's the lesson that I take from my parents and, and Motown in general. And that's the road that I've been on these 20, 25 years of creating my, my own music. I'm, I'm, following, I'm following the beat that's inside of me and what's authentic and real for me. Fantastic. And, uh, and, and, you know, and thinking outside the box and not being dictated to. I want to share with you because um, you do not live in Atlanta. If you did, we get to hear more yes. from you, I hope. But Motown is one of my cherished four M's, which mm. consist of Mozart, Motown, mm. Muppets, yes. and Mel Brooks. Uh, I love it. I love it. That's but so great. Motown was so critical to my generation. Yes, yes. And, and I'm on the younger end of it, a little younger than your mom. Yes. And, you know, I started listening when I was still in middle school. Mm. What you said about the authenticity, yes. about that being the soundtrack for such a critical moment yes. in American history, it's a good thing you didn't try to mimic because <laughs> that's where it lives, even though it lives on. Well, I believe that about all art, and I think we make a mistake with the Mozarts and the, you know, when we look back and say, that was great. I want to copy that <laughs> to, in order to try to be great myself. It, it never works. The copying never works. That's not what they were doing. And I think that that is, is it just a mistake that we make as a society. Singer-songwriter Rhonda Ross Kendrick. Whiskey and Ribbons is the first novel written by Lisa Cross Smith. The story takes on themes of love, family, and loss. In the book, three separate narrators explore their relationships with each other and the world at large. Lisa Cross-Smith joined me in studio when her book debuted in 2018. Here, she explains how the story unfolds. Yeah, well, you know, since I was working with so much grief, because we have a widow who loses her husband um, in the line of duty. He's a police officer. We, she loses him um, when she's nine months pregnant. I, I really wanted to make sure that we did have a lot of hope and a lot of light in there spilling through the cracks. It was really important to me to do that. Um, and so 
what what is happening is that he is killed when she's nine months pregnant, and then so it is now six months later, and his adopted brother, her husband's adopted brother, has moved in to help take care of her and the baby. And the characters are Eamon, the police mm-hmm. officer killed in the line of duty, his wife Evangeline, mm-hmm. and the brother is Dalton. Mm-hmm. The baby is Noah. Yes. The story is told from the vantage point of the three main characters, Evangeline, Eamon, and Dalton. What does this device provide the reader? When I set out to write it, um, it took me a little bit to to even figure out how I wanted to structure it. And so I ended up structuring it as a fugue, which I came to find out was to a composer to write it as a piece of music, which means um, to take three voices and one of the voices drops out. And so that made so much sense to me. So what I was trying to do is to make sure that although we have Evangeline and Dalton snowed in together, um, they're trapped almost. And it's you know it's a blizzard, and they can't go anywhere, so they're forced to to deal with their their feelings in that tricky territory. And then when we take it out, and when we go into the past, and we talk to Eamon, and we talk to Dalton, when we go back, and and we're able to to talk to them in that way. I wanted the reader to get the full picture in the past and present and to get to know the characters even though he has passed away. Um, and so, and then I also wanted to sound almost in some spots like one voice. So they actually repeat certain phrases throughout. They, they mimic each other and I, I try to do it in a subtle way and make it, make it feel really organic and natural. But, but I wanted it to feel like a, you know, a piece of music when you read it together. Another technique? You employ is repetition, Mm -hmm. and I love it. For example, I would sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and cry and cry and cry and cry and cry. Lisa, I'd like to think that no editor tried to dissuade you from doing that. (laughs) You're right. They they didn't. Good. Yeah, they they really didn't. And thank you for being so kind. If an editor had wanted to fight me on that, I would have fought back pretty hard. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's how real people think. Mm -hmm. We don't articulate the way uh, prose usually appears. Those of us who especially enjoy a lyrical approach to writing will appreciate, will savor your style, Lisa. And you add yet another layer to lyrical with the many references to music, beginning with the definition of fugue Mm -hmm. as an epigraph. Would you talk about the importance of music in this story? Yeah, so Evangeline is a ballerina, and so music would always, always be important to her. And then we have Dalton, who's a a classically trained pianist. His his mother was a concert pianist, And, and it just comes easy to him. He's just good at it. It's something he does. He doesn't even do it professionally. He's just good at it. And so from there, that was something I gave them in common. Um, they, they both really, really love music and participate in music in a different way than Eamon does. And so with Eamon, he just loves listening to it. So I, I really was specific about having him love, you know, like um, 
like 80s, 90s yacht rock, having him love like Phil Collins and Sade and Elton John and Billy Joel. Um, I just, lo- you know, I just loved music. And since I, since I decided to write it as a piece of music, I wanted to also incorporate tons and tons of music within the text as much as I could. That felt natural. Well, it seems that you are certainly well-informed, if not trained in music somewhat yourself. Would you talk about writing the story as a piece of music? Yeah, I'm really, you know, I, I, I majored in musical theater when I, I went to performing arts high school and majored in musical theater, and I played a little violin. I feel really fish out of water when I dip into any kind of composing or even reading music. I'm not fluent. I can I, I can read a little bit from, like, fourth and fifth grade orchestra class. But but I um I was actually watching Mozart in the Jungle, and watching that, really inspired me because I was like, you know what, let me try to research composers and how they approach writing a piece of music because just sitting down to write it at the laptop was not working for me. Um, And so when I started reading about fugues, also to read about a requiem. And so I'm like writing about someone's death. um, What happens when you can't put things into words? What, what, What happens when you can't, you can't say what you want to say? Where, you know, where do you turn? And so digging into that, it all came magically, came and made sense to me. And then once I started approaching it like a piece of music, so Evangeline's voice, what would I write for her? Her voice. This is her part. This is her solo. And then also the chorus. What would they be repeating? What do I want the reader to hear and feel from this? And then to give them all their time in the spotlight, really, knowing that one voice was going to drop out, which broke my heart. You know, I hate myself a little bit for it. But, you know, it was it was where the story was was going, obviously. You also connect Dalton to his birth mother with music. Um, you mentioned that she was a very accomplished pianist, hoped to be a concert pianist, and she would play a piano transcription of Vivaldi's Spring mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the Four Seasons for him. I love this passage where you wrote, watching curtains trembling in the wind made Dalton want to play the piano. They looked like a song. Mm-hmm. I love mixed metaphors. Mm-hmm. Like so do I. Amen. Now, the author Alexander G., who is also a music lover. His novel, The Queen of the mm-hmm. Night, was inspired by a famous opera singer. She said, Whiskey and Ribbons is as immediate and compelling as music. How did that make you feel? <laughs> it about knocked me over. I mean, he is just the literati. He, he, is, he, he is such a gift you know, to all of us. How did you connect with him? We were, um, you know, we've been social media friends. I really just, re- for years, I-, I can't even remember how-, how it happened. But, yeah, I just, you know, shyly reached out and asked him, you know, if if he ever had the time, if he would mind taking a look at it and to tell me what I thought. for Because I knew that blurb would just be so important um, to have his voice behind it. And, and I knew it would be so beautiful because that's what he does. He writes really beautiful things. And so what a gift to get, you know, blurb like that to go to go on the cover. But yeah, when I heard it the first time someone, my publishers read his blurb to me aloud and I mean, about knocked me down. It's beautiful, beyond. I'm telling you, <laughs> that's a benediction. <laughs> now, in addition to music pervading this story, 
There are beautiful passages that made me wonder if you are a poet. One example, I was a widow, a word so ghostly and hollow, a word that should have been a palindrome but wasn't, those W's with their arms stretched wide, begging for mercy. Do you write poetry? <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I, um, when I was in college getting my English degree, I did take some creative writing classes, and I, outside of one class, I only took poetry. I love poetry. I would never dare to sit here and say that I'm a poet or call myself a poet, but I do read a lot of poetry. Um, the thing that brings me to the page over and over again is my love of language and wrestling with language and trying as much as I can to write the most beautiful sentence that I can at that moment. That's what I'm always, always bleeding and trying to do. That's why I strap myself down and I'm like, I will not get up until I can knock this out. So, um, I, you know, it, it's such a it's such a treat for, for you to read that part. because I, I, too, think that part is beautiful, but that, that sentence, those sentences did not come, did not come easy for me. That's me sitting there for weeks, <laughs> getting, you know, getting that to say exactly what I wanted to say, absolutely. So thank you. You are welcome. I have another example. Grief radiates. Since Eamon was killed, my bones ache with sadness. There is a gritty black tea stain on my heart, every organ. Do metaphors just come to you effortlessly? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get inside your head, Lisa. Oh, Why well, can't I think it's, like it's that? It's a mess in there. It's wild. Um, I would say so, sometimes they do come to me easily. Sometimes they don't. That one specifically, I, I was thinking about how when I was in high school, I remember my PE teacher, We were he was teaching us about nicotine and the effects of drugs on your body. And I remember him talking about how every organ could get addicted to nicotine. So it's not just you being addicted to nicotine, but your heart gets addicted to it. Your liver can get addicted to it. And I, I would think about that like every every part of you. And so I, I do believe that when I was writing that part, I was thinking about how it affects every every part of you, you know, to honor every every space. You know, I'm, I'm really hurting and grief is physical. It hurts you physically. And so I'm thinking about Evangeline and she would be suffering physically and, I, and feeling like she's like she's stained. And in the short story version of this of this, um, I I also wrote that she is almost like she had a watermark, and if you held her up to the right light, you could see it. And so she feels like she's walking around with that stain. She feels like she's walking around with those marks. Like, can't everyone see, you know, how she's grieving? It's something she can't hide. Dalton and Eamon, you state emphatically, are a package deal. Mm -hmm. And she knew at the outset would you talk about their closeness and what makes it so extraordinary? Yeah, I really love the idea and the realness of brotherhood and friends who are like brothers and men who are not afraid to be um, really affectionate with each other and to, to share love for each other. They just love each other deeply. And I feel like that happens so much, and maybe we don't talk about it as much, especially when, when boys are kids and, and especially um, 
when they're young and, and you know, when you find it a lot with men in the military and men who've been through that, you know, they're like they would die for their brother. Like, you know, it's no joke and blood doesn't matter at all. Like they just love each other so much. And so I love seeing that in other books. I love seeing that in movies. And so I just loved to write that and just to write their friendship. They're, I mean, they're like obsessed with each other, which I loved. I loved exploring. Yeah. I am so glad you brought this <laughs> subject up because I wanted to tell you I was struck by how often and how much the men in this book cry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not only in the portions where they're grieving, mm-hmm. these men tear up when they're happy. And they seem to cry a lot more readily <laughs> than a lot of other male characters Do the men you know, the men in your life, Lisa, do they express their emotions so readily, or was this something you wanted to imbue these male Mm -hmm. characters with specifically? Yeah, the the men in my life don't really express themselves in that way. Um, I think that's why I specifically wanted to make sure that my characters did. Um, But also, I find men to be so much more incredibly emotional than women. Um, We just, we we do tear up a lot more sometimes. A lot of women do. And so um, I feel like maybe if men did that more, then maybe they would feel better and not hold that in and not have it come out in violence and not have it come out in different ways. Um, No, I I think it's really sweet. And and also when it happens in the book, it's when it's the two of them together. And so I was really wanting to make sure I could create that intimacy. They feel very comfortable in front of each other. They don't feel weird about crying in front of each other. So they maybe wouldn't come to tears in front of strangers or someone they didn't know as well. But in front of each other, they're just completely laid bare. And that's what I was wanting to get across and to make sure that I got that across And you know, every time they're together. And Eamon's love the love he declares for Evangeline, he tears up. Mm-hmm. And now I think you're so right. I mean, here we are well into the 21st century, and we're still wondering why men feel self-conscious mm-hmm. or have been conditioned to think that it's not acceptable to cry, whether Absolutely. they're happy or sad. No, I, I love that. This seems a good time to talk about the title. We were speaking about the how expressive and uninhibited about expressing their emotions Mm -hmm. Dalton and Eamon are. Would you tell us about the title since it's Eamon's expression? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, originally it was just something he something he would say. Um, and, and I couldn't really find a, anything to hook it to. I couldn't really find a background. I, I couldn't even figure out where, where he would have gotten this from. And so it interested me. And I have a girlfriend, a very close, um, dear girlfriend to me. And she read one of the early versions of it. And she was like, why don't you make it a toast? Like, make it a toast. Make it just his thing. And so I never really give a background to where he came up with this, why he came up with this. But so I incorporated the toast into there. So they say it several times before and after his death, and he also says it. So he he, he explains it as being whiskey is um, a whiskey is like a, a man, you know, it only only dangerous if you take us too seriously. And ribbons, you're so beautiful and sleek and gorgeous, and you hold us together. You're the ribbons, and so he'll say to whiskey and ribbons. But originally, I just picked it because I like the words. I like the word whiskey, and um, I was thinking of playing with 
men and women, men being whiskey, women being ribbons. But then it kind of took on a, a life of its own, and I really can't even remember. But it worked, and I'm glad I was able to keep it and, <laughs> and use it. <laughs> and so Eamon not only cries whether he's happy or sad, <laughs> he also comes up with these beautiful metaphors. <laughs> Evangeline says... Dalton and Eamon were a package deal. How does their relationship ultimately determine the arc of whiskey and ribbons? Mm -hmm. What we have early on is Eamon just realizing for the first time in his life how much he loves Evangeline. And now that they're married, um, he, he would be crushed if something were to happen to him and she... And she would be left alone. So he's been a police officer for years, but never had a never been in love like this. So it wasn't something he had to think about. He doesn't have kids. He's never been in love like this. He didn't have a pregnant wife. So if something happened to him, it would just happen to him. But now when he sees the scope of it. And so for him, um, it was an easy choice for him to ask his adopted brother, his best friend, his brother, um, if something were to happen to me, make sure you take care of Evangeline. You know, promise me that. And then it's also hooked back to the fact that Dalton lost his mom and when, when he was younger and Eamon's parents adopted him. So it was just almost like a, you know, it, when, when needed to be, it's a, a tradition in their family that they make sure they take care of who needs to be taken care of, the babies and the, and the you know, and, and the wives. So in no way Dalton is in pursuit of Evangeline. This was part of what he called the pact. Absolutely. So they referenced they referenced the pact in there, and 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 so I wanted to make sure that it felt um, normal. I wanted to make sure that in no way did the reader think that Dalton was preying on Evangeline or or trying to do anything shady there at all. He he's you know, and and so the re, it's up to the reader to unpack is is Dalton taking care of Evie because because they've gotten there in their relationship now and that's natural or does he feel like he's doing it out of obligation and then Evie has those same questions too as they're snowed in together as they try to figure that out I found it remarkable that you seldom address race mm -hmm. Penelope the best friend of Eamon's mother was white mm -hmm. it's only when we're 66 pages into the book that we learn Dalton is biracial. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about why race is not central to the story? Yeah, a lot of it was just um, I feel really honored to have the opportunity to write a book and to get it published. When I was growing up, um, anytime I wanted to read a book that had a little black girl on the cover or even mention a little black girl, the book was only about civil rights. It was only she was living in Birmingham. It was only about Martin Luther King. It was only about slavery. She was a little slave. Um, I really just wanted to read a book about a black girl who, you know, liked dragons and unicorns and went to the mall and just had a crush on a boy or went to a baseball game without it constantly talking about her being black and the struggles and the trauma of being black. I mean, I've been black my whole life. Um, but but also, I would just want to read books, too. And there's a lot of black kids that just want to read books, so just books, and doesn't have to be about race. And so I feel re really honored to be able to write um, men and women who are black, but it's not central to the story. It's about grief, which knows no color. Absolutely. It's about love, which knows no color. It's about brotherhood, which knows no color. 
Um, and so it, it just wouldn't have been important for me to talk about their race at all. The same way I don't wake up in the morning and, and you know, and re reassess the fact that I'm black. I'm black all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a... Last time you checked. <laughs> absolutely. And so it's not something that I feel like I even need to mention at all, which I know is confusing for some people because there's not a black woman on the cover and there's no nothing on the title that would, would alert you to that. Um, it doesn't take place in a in a you know in a predominantly black city that we think of as just like oh there must be a black story coming out from Harlem or or some other or some other thing like that and so there are plenty of black people getting married and living their lives in Louisville Kentucky I'm one of them and there are plenty more so yeah that was important to me I thoroughly get that and <laughs> and applaud you for it I think the reason I wondered was because of the fact that he is a policeman mm-hmm which would make him vulnerable. And also, Louisville, I mean, Kentucky was a border state. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, yeah. It wasn't known for being racially progressive. Oh, no, it, no, it's still not, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. It is not known mm-hmm. for being racially mm-hmm. progressive. And, and that's what struck me. But it is... But that is not at the essence of the story. No, not at all. And I've also had people sweetly tell me that it was such a relief um, to them that that they could pick up the book and there was a police officer and he's a good man. It's not a political book at all. It's not. That's not the book I'm writing. There are people, brilliant people out there writing those books. Um, uh, That's not the book that I'm writing. And so I feel really honored to be able to write and, and to write about a police officer who's a good man. He's not tangled up with any sort of politics. He goes to his job every day. He comes home. He loves his wife. He loves his brother. He loves his family. And um, it, they could be any color, really. But it was important for me that I represent them as black. And, you know, I don't hide the fact that they are black because I want a black woman to be able to pick up a book and, and, and read a book about a black woman, you know, who just has a crush and is snowed in. It's going to have a sip of whiskey because her baby is with her parents for the night and she gets to take a break, you know. But I, I've talked about it before. It's such a radical act to have a, a woman, a black woman go into the kitchen and make tea without, you know, contemplating her blackness. Um, Yeah, she's fine. She's fine. She's just living her life. Faith is a strong component of this story. And in reading portions where the characters refer to God, I had the impression that you are letting readers in on something deeply personal about your religious mm-hmm. belief. Is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm super outspoken about my own Christianity, my relationship with Jesus. My dad is a Southern Baptist preacher. So I, you know, a Southern Baptist preacher. I was, I was raised this way, slash the faith has always come easily for me. I do not know how to function without it. I do not personally know how to live in this world without the hope of something else. This world is so dark, and I believe that the devil stays very busy. And so for me, it was really important to have my characters express frustration at God, which is which happens in the Bible all the time. You know, like we're allowed to do that. We're allowed to ask God questions. Why is this happening? I wanted to show realistically that when they had nothing else left, they would they would lean on that because that's what they know. That's comforting for them. But also it's not this um, it's not this Christianity that's portrayed on on TV, this perfect, gleaming Christianity where you never have any questions and, and everything is so perfect if you just pray about it. No, it's hard. This is hard. It's a struggle. It's being a human in a human body. It is hard sometimes. And so 
especially with all that they're going through, I have them all in their own way um, vocalize that, you know, from Evie being like, why is this happening? Why did this happen to me? And, you know, from Eamon also, you know, being the same way and working at the church and meeting Evangeline there to to Dalton being like, you know, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me in my life. In my life, should I should I should I still believe? And and when I'm found in the darkness, when, when I really need God the most, you know, is he there? If I cry out for him. Would you read a passage? I'd love to. Before we conclude. It, it is from Dalton. There have been several key changes in my life. Moments I knew would affect the rest of it forever. Loretta telling me Penelope was gone. Permanent key change. Would never return to the original. Eamon dying. Amen, the unfinished melody that would haunt me as long as I lived. No music, no voice, nothing would ever sound the same again. My heart, my soul, everything. Modulation. Lisa Crossmith is the author of Whiskey and Ribbons. Her new collection of short stories just came out. It's titled So We Can Glow. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. with a new show. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.